0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Sri Gishnan Ganesha, co-founder and CEO of Rocket Lane. In this episode, Shri shares his experience navigating through a couple of acquisitions and how trust is the main component that ensures a smooth integration between the companies. Shri also shared what Connoteur, his first startup, did prior to being acquired by Freshworks and what their growth looked like leading up to the acquisition. We then discussed how FreshChat changed their target customer by taking a step back and taking a look at the overall market how that decision accelerated its growth, which then inspired Sri to take the leap once again and build a new product, Rocketlane. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow Don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth.
1: How do you build a habit forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing.
0: Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode.
1: Hey, Sri, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me on
0: today. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Sri is the co founder of Rocket Lane, a purpose built customer onboarding platform that shortens your time to value and eliminates hit or miss experiences for your customers. Prior to Rocket Lane, Sri started his career as a business analyst and product manager at Horizon. He then went on to found Contour, a mobile first user engagement platform that was later acquired by Freshworks, where he then worked on their hotline and fresh chat products. So my first question for you Sri is, having experienced a couple of acquisitions now, What would you say are the most important components to completing an acquisition, ensuring a smooth integration?
1: Though I've myself been part of one acquisition of of Connotor by Freshworks, I've also witnessed the acquisitions of probably seven other companies when I was part of Freshworks. So I I, I think uh, the most important element, I think, is that once you've established trust between the principles on both sides, right? And this this is probably more true. Smaller companies acquiring even smaller companies, not like large corporates where the principle may be hard to find. But if, if you have that trust established, I think the rest of it falls in place easily. And you need to. There's obviously the legalities that you want to work with and and ensure that you bring all your concerns to the table and those are addressed in your documents and so on. The way I handled that was between me and the founder of the acquiring company, there was complete trust and we didn't negotiate with each other. We let lawyers do the negotiation and that sort of helped us retain our relationship through the ups and downs that you go through to arrive at what's the right what's the right details of, of the acquisition that is happening, what's the right terms that you negotiate and so on
0: yeah that's interesting you say that Uh, also when you said worries me a little bit because i think sometimes lawyers like to be lawyers uh, and sometimes they can end up complicating things more than necessary but it's interesting from the perspective of just saying like maintaining the relationship is really important to make sure things get go through smoothly and it's interesting that you just let them get on with it as well from that side um let's talk about that a little bit then like initial the company conateur like what were you doing at the time what was the idea like how did that take off?
1: I had actually worked as head of product at a B2C video app that was taking on YouTube for in, in India in emerging markets. And from that experience, I felt it was easy enough to build an app and take it to a wider audience. So we built a voice messaging app to take on WhatsApp. This was back in 2012. And we soon realized that it wasn't as easy to get people to try out your new app. What I experienced in the video world did not apply to the messaging world. The network effects were far too strong. And we pivoted from that B2C business into B2B SDK because we saw that people who were using our app were messaging back and forth with us to give us like feedback on our product. or We were messaging them to ask them for, to nudge them to the next step in their journey and so on. So we felt a WhatsApp-like inbox for other people's apps could be a great idea as an engagement mechanism for mobile apps. And so that's what we built. Uh, That's what Connator was. It was essentially about providing an SDK that went into other people's apps, like a plugin inside their apps that enabled a messaging inbox for their apps. And then the tools for the business to proactively reach out to the customers, engage back and forth on feedback or customer support through this messaging channel.
0: Very interesting. I like sort of the realization in terms of the network effects and how difficult and the pivot then to focus more towards B2B. How did the business then take off? You realized uh, the initial direction wasn't working. You decided to make a pivot and focus on B2B. What was some of the early sort of wins that you had? What did growth look like? And maybe give us some sort of time frame as well.
1: Right. This is back in 2013. I think the Built the first version of our SDK. I had been a product manager in my previous job, so I could connect well with other product managers in different companies, speaking their language, pitching to them why they should use our SDK. Got some of them to try it. And I think a lot of product managers got excited to put it in their apps. But then there was some resistance from the technical team and then from the customer support team because they now had a new channel to deal with. We still managed to push through with a few smaller companies And then the interesting thing that happened was once we were live with a company that had 5,000 monthly active users, we could go to someone who had 10,000 users and say, Hey, you know what? These guys with 5,000 are using it. We are sure that we can help you use our product as well. And it should be a breeze for you to do this. Once we got the 10,000, then we went to someone who had 20,000, then to someone who had 50,000 users, then to someone who had 100,000, and then 250,000, and so on. So it became an interesting journey for us to take these step functions, a function sort of growth to bigger and bigger apps. And it also so happened that some of our early customers grew rapidly. And one of them had like, at some point in time, 2 million active users a month. And overall, our platform, of a sudden had 8 million users using our SDK. And it was just three of us, three founders building and supporting the product.
0: Wow, well, very cool. So you hit this point then. What happened next? So you and I like as well like how you started off just getting smaller customers, getting some validation, using those as proof points to win bigger customers, and then like pretty much using social proof all throughout your the sales cycle. But then what happened next? You have now two million users using the platform. What's next? Things started to break.
1: It was just the three of us stretched very hard doing the sales, marketing, and building the product, supporting the, you know, scale that that we were reaching every month. And that's when we decided uh, we need to hire people for the team. We had, incidentally, some success with larger customers as well. We had a sort of enterprise contract with a US-based Fortune 50 retailer, and we had won some money from a contest organized by two big VCs. So we had the money and we were looking for like the best talent and finally started hiring people for our team. And after two years into the journey, right? And yeah. At that point started onboarding our team members. Things looked set for growth. We had had a lot of success in India, Southeast Asia with our SDK, not so much in uh, US and Europe till that point in time, other than like a handful of customers we had somehow gotten in the US. So Mm -hmm. we were about to scale, we had put together our documents to raise an angel round. And that's when there was inbound interest in acquiring the company. And we went that route. So it was an exciting enough offer. And we had known Freshworks, the acquired a company pretty well, knew that they were like really successful and growing fast. So just thought it makes sense to align with them.
0: Yeah, very fast turnaround then. What is this like two, three years and you had your offer for acquisition?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah it was close to three years that we had been operating. And yeah, it was an interesting. It was a, f- a fast journey, but I think because for a long time, Part of the time, it was just the three of us doing everything. It also felt like a longer time than <laughs> yeah, it actually
0: was. Absolutely. Yeah, you're working like two, two lifetimes uh, trying to build the company. The uh, yeah, And then you mentioned as well, you got acquired by Freshdesk. I think like one of my favorite episodes that I've watched before was actually with Guresh, the CEO. Of Freshworks, uh, sorry. I think it's been unbelievable to watch how they've built that business. And like you say, like the, through your time, you were there seeing several acquisitions. Like they've managed to build like such an amazing company. And the, one of the things that I loved so much about Freshworks was how they started out with a single product with uh, focusing on like a specific like audience, target persona. So, I can't remember exactly if it was support. They started out with support and doing the fresh desk, and then realized the same products could be used for internal like bug tracking. Launched a new product that was focused towards developers. Correct me if I'm wrong here or whatever, but it, it was it really was IT support. IT support, yeah. And what I found was like really, really interesting was like almost identical products, but just selling into a different audience within inside the organization. They were able to increase expansion revenue quite drastically and with very minimal changes needing to be made like
1: were you at the company not when the decisions were made but i I was very much witness to the growth of fresh service which was the second product right like the it help desk as you said it it was a flavor on top of the original help desk (laughs) product but then once you say hey this is for it it starts developing its own personality as a product a bunch of capabilities focused on that persona and so on and i think that was a great move at that time and uh, not too many people will encourage you to shift focus while your first product is still not yet a certain revenue number etc so uh, i think uh, girish battled for what he believed in and and the result is for everyone to see yeah
0: yeah absolutely so then you were at the company for quite a while as well building out they rebranded the company to hotline was that it
1: yeah, so Freshworks had been working on their own mobile SDK as well. So when we got acquired, the team that was already building this at Freshworks got attached to our team. So now we had a bigger team and we could go after the same mission. We've not just rebranded, brought in some of the capabilities that Freshworks had already built also into our SDK. So it was not only conversations anymore, it was also mobile-friendly FAQs. So it became more of a help and support-focused experience. And we took this to market, still focused on mobile. So I was there for a total of four and a half years. And for the first two years almost, we focused on Hotline.io, which was mobile first customer support software. And what we realized though was we, we continued to have good success in India and Southeast Asia. But I would say when compared to the rest of the Freshworks business, it was clear that this was a different kind of business. This was more outbound evangelism heavy in terms of how we needed to sell the product versus you know, the rest of the company had leads dropping on their laps and they just had to f- fulfill the demand. Right? We had to go and create the demand as well for our product. And what we realized a year and a half into all of this was that mobile customer support was not as big a wave yet, especially in the developed markets, because people were still figuring out what they should do with their mobile app. They had launched an app, if you look at any retailer back in 2015, 2016, they probably launched their app. They were iterating on the design of it. They wanted to make their app successful, but they didn't know how, they didn't know who they were building the app for. Is it for the loyal audience? Is it for bringing a new customer? And while they were figuring that out, honestly, mobile support wasn't the priority for them. So we could see that why other players in the space were also growing slowly. There was a, a separate space, which was a modern conversation platform for SaaS products, which was growing fast. So someone like Intercom had grown from 1 to 50 million in three years. While at the same time, I think the leader in in the mobile support space had grown from, let's say, 5 to 12 million. So we saw that, realized that we were probably playing in a very hard market where the growth was slow and decided to rebrand and relaunch with web and mobile. And that's what FreshChat was all about. So we took the same product, said, hey, we are going to add a web component to it. And the focus is going to be on not just mobile, And that sort of changed everything for us in terms of the momentum we saw.
0: For me, I think this is super interesting. And it's like big kudos as well to realizing this and taking a step back and looking at the market. I think a lot of times as well, when we think about building companies and we look at our go-to-market strategy and who our ideal customer persona is, one thing I think we forget as well is that if you're doing your ideal customer persona and you're looking at your existing customer base, your existing customer base is a direct result of your marketing and the product that you've built today, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be the biggest and best opportunity for the company. So, what led you to take a look at the market then, and like, uh, just realize, obviously, somebody like Intercom had come in the SaaS space and exploded, like. What prompted uh, this discussion? What prompted you to take that step back and look at the overall market and see where it was going? So
1: there were a few things. Our salesperson, the first sales hire for Connator had been pushing me to say, hey, why don't you build this for web as well? I know I can sell it to more people. But then I said, hey, there are hundred others doing this for web. Why would I do it for web as well? USP is mobile. On the other hand, we also had customers telling us, hey, can you also give this for mobile and we can use it for our website as well? And then... The last thing was I was attending a startup event where an investor, an investor friend of girish in fact, one of the first investors in Freshworks, he was, you know, giving this talk about how a rising tide lifts all nodes. And that's the sort of market you want to play in when you're doing a startup because already everything's stacked against you. And if the market is also stacked against you, then your chances of of success are lower. And and when I was listening to that it's felt like it really rung true that if no one else in your market is also doing like extremely well, growing super fast, doubling every year, tripling every year, then maybe it's not all of your products that are a problem, but it's the market itself. Maybe it's premature for the market. It need not mean the market will never exist, but definitely right now the momentum wasn't with us.
0: Yeah. I like that point as well in terms of timing. And there's been many cases of this, like where you have some great products that just came out too early and then maybe a a subpar product came out a few years later and owned the market. And also at the point of the rising tides, like you said, like startups are incredibly difficult. And if there's like just having others around you, seeing their success, it helps validate the work that you're doing. If there's a lot of unknowns still and you don't really have a big player in the market, that's leading the way. It also you struggle I think with perception and people understanding your product understanding the use cases like there's a whole bunch of things that need to go into making like product take off and I think one of them is timing like you say. It's a very interesting perspective. the so then all right made the shift fresh chat started seeing a bit of success talk us through what's next. What made you decide then to leave freshworks now want to go ahead and start Rocket Lane. What was the
1: motivation? Right. I think I, I think every time I start something, it comes on the back of some sort of delusion that we know, now know a new formula to succeed. Right, The last time was from a video app. This time it was from our Fresh Chat journey itself, where in, in the two and a half years uh, that we spent at Freshworks after the relaunch as Fresh Chat, This became the fastest product in Freshworks to reach various revenue milestones. The team experienced great growth and obviously it became a bigger team. But also personally, I think every person on the team had great challenges in front of them. And I could see they were all leveling up. Every passing quarter, they were taking on bigger challenges and handling those. So the growth, the momentum was pushing everyone to level up. And we felt as a founding team that was still in charge of the product, we felt we had learned a lot in those two and a half years. And it almost felt if we don't go out and start one more to try to put to use what we've learned in this journey, then we're not doing justice to what's been given to us. So it, it felt like we were truly inspired by the growth of Freshworks, to be honest, and that's what made us think, why not do one more like this? Why not chase something with great momentum this time and have a new team come on the journey with us, where all of our new team members can also experience the growth. And it's in a way. It's good for the ecosystem as well, right, to see more startups coming through and replicating the success that we've seen.
0: For sure, for sure. I like you mentioned it as well at the beginning of the show before we started recording, like how your ambition levels had changed since joining Freshworks and uh, ha- having a new perspective now. I really like that. Talk us through that a little bit because I think this is one thing I think for me, like, you speak to a lot of people and depending where you come from and your backgrounds, like your ambition and your levels and like what you're aiming to achieve can be wildly different. I remember like having a conversation with my parents like about a year ago and looking at their backgrounds, the way that they were brought up and their uh, parents were both like working class and like their ambition levels, they had a good ambition level, I think to some degree, but they both then ended up becoming entrepreneurs and that set my levels like at a totally different level to theirs. And I try to have this conversation with them saying, I think we have different levels of ambition. And I think this is probably one of the reasons, obviously there's a multitude of impacts like the nurture nature and sort of thing, but how did that influence you? What were some of the things that really opened your eyes? Like what was it that changed that shift in uh, ambition?
1: Yeah, I think it's just understanding what's possible, right? Like when you see a company, which was also started in Chennai, in in India, like probably just a couple of years before we started our journey on Connator and and the level of success they had accomplished and how it was taking over the world. Here's a company which which was flying a blimp over the Salesforce tower during Dreamforce. And uh, obviously the revenues have kept growing. The company has become so big. It was 300 people when we joined. When I left, it was 2,000. And now it's probably much more. It it, it really opened our eyes to what success can, what momentum can be, what it can do for you and for a team. And that sort of made us feel, hey, this is something that we could do as well, right? Not necessarily the same outcomes in the same time periods, but we felt, hey, why not take this on as a challenge and try to build something new and, and big this time? Because we had a good outcome last time, but... That was more a function of like good negotiation and so on, and being lucky being acquired by Freshworks at a time when Freshworks was a lot smaller. But I, I think this time we have our sets' eyes set towards much bigger dreams as well, because we have that first success in our pockets already, which means we can afford to aim big now. It's go big or go home. It's not to survive, it's more to uh, really do something big.
0: Yeah. Uh, and knowing what you know today, does it influence like your decision that you made to sell to FreshWorks?
1: Are there any regrets? Not really. I think there's so much we learned from that journey that I if I were to make that decision again, I would do it the same way. Uh-huh. I'd probably, you know, pivot into Freshchat, Chat, the sure web not. part of it faster. <laughs> yeah. But yeah
0: nice and yeah i like the point as well like i just found it very interesting when you mentioned at the beginning of the show is like a lot of times you don't know what you don't know like just being surrounded being in an environment where people show you what's actually possible sometimes we're our own worst enemies with our own limiting beliefs and just being shown away and showing like what's actually possible allows you to set your targets higher and push for bigger and better things so i really wish you best of luck with that now Sri. tell us a little bit what you're doing now, like. Why, what do you do at Rocket Line? How do you help your customers? What's different?
1: Sure, it comes from our experiences at FreshWorks, where we got pulled into like mid-market and enterprise deals pretty fast with FreshChat. And what happened was most of these you know, need a lot of project management, collaboration with the customer, communication with the customer when you're onboarding large customers, right? And this happens in siloed tools, right? You have spreadsheets, documents, emails, Trello boards and whatnot, which make it hard. You're scrambling with all of these to get across the finish line. Usually needs heroics from someone and that's not scalable. And we felt, hey, there must be a better way to do this, which also keeps in mind what the customer experience should be. Because as a result of using all of these different tools, what we were also doing was we were putting customer experience in the back burner, it was like an afterthought. We said, if we approach this whole problem of working hand in hand with a customer on a project, on like documents, et cetera, through a journey where you know the pieces of the journey already, then how would we build this different experience differently? And that's what Rocket Lane is all about. It's about helping B2B companies accelerate their time to value and streamline their onboarding and implementation journey with their customers
0: nice and just for clarity as well when we talk about onboarding we're talking about the high touch one to one or one to many like onboarding experience we're not talking about like automated onboarding with emails this is more like when you say like mid-market enterprise clients where you have level of handholding educating them on the product onboarding is that correct
1: that's right so this is yeah. about like everything that happens after the sale from your kickoff to scoping project plans integrations migrations testing, training, value delivery, go live, right? So you have all of these pieces coming together and you're saying, hey, I have a implementation team. I have a customer success person. They need to work hand in hand with my customer through this journey. And they need a way to track what work is on their plate. They need to make it transparent and delightful for their customers so that every customer is having a great start of the journey with you. Because this is really where the partnership with your customer starts and giving a great experience there is going to set you up for success with the customer.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit before the show as well, but in my opinion, after all these episodes on the podcast and the past experience that onboarding is by far one of the biggest and most impactful uh, things you can do when it comes to combating churn uh, and also it's a compounding impact so if you get people set up right from the beginning that sets you up for success allows you to keep customers around for longer and i think it's super important it's actually funny that this is probably one of the first companies that are, when we talk about onboarding pretty much everyone i've ever interviewed on the show has been around this high touch automated onboarding model through emails and in-app sort of thing where this is taking it uh different approach for different target segments. So it's interesting. What are some of the things you're seeing in the space that customers are doing really well when it comes to this high touch onboarding? And what are some of the areas where you think things aren't going so well that your solution is really helping with?
1: Yeah, I think different people have cracked different parts of the puzzle really well. I, I know companies that do a great job with training and activation of team members to start using their product. On the other hand, there's someone else who's really cracked how to do a great kickoff meeting and how to set expectations right from that point, how to hold the customer accountable through the journey, because often there's work to be done on both sides. You need to do some things, the customer needs to do some things in order to go live with your product. So, what we found is there are these great nuggets of wisdom that people have in different parts of the journey. I, I don't think, I, I think there's a lot that all of them can learn from each other. And so we are learning from all of them, putting together like playbooks that customers can use, which would give them ideas about how to think about best practices around kickoff, how to think about incorporating best practices around implementation, around customizations, around training, around testing, scoping, all of that. That's part of what you know we are helping with. This time, our belief is it's not only about providing a product. It's also about thinking about the problem in general and enabling our customers to find value from us as a company, not just from the software we provide. Of course, I think where the software really shines, when you use generic project tools or spreadsheets to collaborate with the customer, once you invite the customer into, let's say, a Trello board or a Asana project, that space becomes a shared experience with them, which means your internal conversations, your internal collaboration needs to find a different space. So we end up with either copies of projects, copies of documents, or you end up with DMing people on Slack for part of the conversation, which you don't want to have in front of the customer. And that sort of creates its own siloed pockets of knowledge about that customer so you don't have a true system of record around your implementation anymore that's one of the problems we believe our software is able to solve by enabling external and internal collaboration to happen in the same place and the second thing we have really focused on is how do you deliver like a consistent experience for every customer so we've really focused on lab creation of playbooks which can include your document collaboration and your project plan including internal and external documents internal like private tasks which are visible only to your team versus tasks visible to the customer, etc. So that your entire playbook is set up and you can make sure the team is adhering to it while still maintaining the right level of complexity in terms of what is shared with the customer. And I think you've created a separate experience for the customer. Think of it like a customer portal, which you can brand. Let's say, let's say Freshworks is a customer, then it would be uh, success.freshworks.com would be the portal that they invite their customers into. Where they get the customer can see where they are in the journey, what needs to be done next, what are all the documents that have been shared with them that they need to work on together, all of that in that one portal.
0: Very nice. And in your opinion, what would you say is your biggest risk that you have today as a company? I would
1: say that's probably, it, it feels like we've built a great product now. And we need to educate the market about the, the importance of this onboarding phase, and we are working on that already. But I think getting the attention towards this onboarding and the fact that people need to focus on a streamlined experience during their high touch onboarding to set them un- set themselves up for success, for set themselves up for like faster expansion into those accounts, and that customer experience makes a difference. Yeah. Bringing that to the fore is is the marketing is where our this is today is what I feel.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely like momentum in the right direction when it comes to, you mentioned some things like the understanding of customer success overall, the ROI of customer success in companies is still something that needs more clarity on. There's definitely a lot of companies moving in the right direction, obviously, like Pretty much everybody listens to this podcast, I think, believes in the value of su- customer success, but there is still a long way to, I think, for like the general population to really get in and buy and understand it. And then, like you said, I think the next step then just becomes a natural step, though. If everybody understands the value of CS, understands the need to have effective onboarding and to have these programs set up, then having a good solution to manage and maintain that process becomes a no-brainer. But yeah, I would agree. The other one I would say as well potentially as well is your own onboarding itself. Because I think the other issue potentially with the product or solution is like the time to value is not super straightforward because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So I'm assuming you're doing a lot of work on your end around putting together, like you said, these playbooks, these templates to try and automate that as fast as possible to get people to value uh, as quickly as possible as well. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. I I think that's definitely another point. The maturity of our customers, if they are at zero, we need to bridge the gap and help them come to one and then to level three, right? Uh, And that's definitely another risk. Uh, A lot of them may be at level zero or level one, while we are trying, like the the features of the product probably help you get to level two and level three, but there's some work we need to help them with to get to that point
0: absolutely i can't remember like we've had this discussion of levels on the show like two or three times around customer success and the different phases the teams go through it definitely is an interesting concept and it sounds like there's more and more agreement on the different stages like from interviews that i've had like people are coming to some sort of a common understanding of what the phases are if i remember what they are we'll drop them in show notes so you can check out the other episodes uh, whoever's listening now but I see we're running up on time. So I want to save the question that I always ask every guest. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company, churn and retention is not doing great. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey Shree, we really need to turn things around. It's on you. You've got 90 days. What do you do? But here's the catch. You're not going to tell me that you're going to go speak to customers, understand their biggest pain points, and then you're going to work on that. You're going to pick something from your past experience something tactical that you've implemented that you've seen had an improvement on channel retention and you're going to run with that, what would it be?
1: Okay. Uh, I'm going to rely on not just my experience, but also what I've heard from others which really resonated with me. I would say for all new customers signing up, I'm going to have someone from their team also responsible for our success metrics, right? So if, if head of marketing is signing up for... A marketing product that we're selling them, then I'm going to say, hey, who from your team is going to be our partner in ensuring success of this so that you can set their KRAs based on what we are supposed to accomplish with our product. And that way, our goals and their goals are really well aligned. They're looking at us as a vendor and saying, hey, you could accomplish your goals, but instead there's someone in their company who is equally motivated to showcase our success because that, that that's what they're signing up for as well. I think uh, this is probably more mid-market enterprise, but I think this is a tactic that I would definitely try out definitely to try see out. if.
0: Yeah, so definitely I think what you're saying is taking sort of the idea of having a customer champion a step further and making both parties accountable for the metrics and achieving the goals. So it's not just on one end where this is a service if you don't deliver, but it's more like, who's the person who's putting their neck out on the line to say that this is going to work and who's going to be most vested and interested to make it work so you have a good partner in crime as you're on board and as you try and help them get to value as fast as possible.
1: That's right. right.
0: Nice. Last question then. What's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career?
1: I would say probably this is like a big mistake (laughs) that we did in the past in the previous startup, which we didn't collect the phone number of our customers. And we just had their email, so we would never know why they left us or why they're not trying it out or whatever, right? So I, I would say if you have a team, you have a customer-facing customer team, whether it's sales or customer success or whatever you want to call it. Empowering them with the ability to call your customer is like, one of the basic things which can really help you solve problems in in your retention.
0: It's so interesting that you say that because literally today I was thinking about this. I've had to fill in my telephone number in a couple of companies now. Uh, I was thinking it's for me, it's a little bit foreign that people still call to do sales deals, but obviously it happens all the time. And it's, there's this notion where you're interrupting the customer in their moments of time without understanding like when they would book an appointment or like when's a good time. But also I do obviously from the customers, from like the company's perspective, understand it's a big opportunity to be able to reach somebody and actually have that call and that discussion by having the telephone number. So. I'm on the fence on this one. I'm not sure which is a thing, but your argument to it makes as well a bit of sense. I don't know like how you feel about the user experience when it comes to providing a telephone number as opposed to just booking a call with them and having it scheduled on their time.
1: Yes, that's pretty much why we didn't do it the last time because we felt it would be interrupting. But having seen the benefit, (laughs) I I just feel, and, and we also figured that a lot of people expect to be called. So it works both ways. You make it optional for the customer to provide the number, but if they're provided by all means, call them. Call them.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And there's obviously a large amount of value in sort of that immediacy. Like you say, the customers expect the call. We also had like a previous episode with Mark Roberge where we're talking about like how the time to the, uh, like the time of the call. So the faster you called your customers, the likely, the higher likelihood of closing. And I think it was like anything over a minute that could dramatically decrease to like 50% chance of closing that deal versus 90% to begin with. So speed and expectations, I think, is also one thing. It's just maybe personal preference of mine is, is not to receive calls. <laughs> cool. Shri. it's been a pleasure chatting today. Thanks. Sek. It's been an exceptional learning from you. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything that like, they should be aware of or up to speed? We'll obviously, in the show notes, provide links to Rocket Lane for them to check it out. But anything else you want to leave
1: us with? I think the only thing I would probably end with is, I think the last year has been a crazy time for all of us given the pandemic. And I think how we build, how we sell, how we engage has all changed quite a bit. And we believe that there's obviously a lot online collaboration that's happening both from a a perspective and a customer success perspective. And and that a modern collaborative experience is going to do a world of good for your team's ability to impress your customers through that onboarding journey. And, and that's sort of what we are building, giving them tools to equip them to look better in front of a customer, hold the customer accountable through the journey, all while still having that asynchronous experience that we all now prefer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Things are changing. Remotes definitely had to stay at least to a big degree and we need to start adapting and getting to it. I think for me, I... Coming, having worked remotely for the last five years or so, I think there's not much of a change, but definitely seeing a change in behavior in the market and we all need to start slowly adapting to it. But Sri, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining and I wish you best of luck now and much success going forward with Rocket Lane.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. Cheers.
0: And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting Churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you.